0: If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce you to Liz Nyehouse, Liz grew up in the Netherlands and started riding as a six-year-old at the local riding school. We'll talk some more about that a little bit later on in the interview. She's trained and competed up to FEI dressage and a metre 30 show jumping, and has been working in the equine industry as a breeder, breaker, trainer, competitor coach, and coach educators for the last 30 years. How are you today, Liz? Good. Thank you. Good. Liz, we're going to start you off with your favourite quote. Can you tell us what your favourite quote is, please?
1: Life has no remote. Get up and change it yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good one. <laughs> now, I'd like you to tell me how it's changed your life or you know,
1: how it's affected you. Uh, I think it's not so much the quote itself that affected me, but more sort of a way of life, I suppose. I've always had to make my own horses and my own career and, you know, nothing was ever sort of handed out to me. And I think that's a good way to learn in the equestrian industry. I think it's a good thing to start from the bottom up and not expect too much handouts. So it sort of applied to my life as such, I guess. Good,
0: good. Now, I know you've got some really interesting stories about your life as you were growing up. You're riding in the local riding school. You started riding as a six-year-old, okay? And then at 12, you got an off-the-track thoroughbred? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about you know, how you came to get a horse as a 12-year-old, but also what the horse was like?
1: Well, my mother used to ride as well, and I think she fell in love with this horse. Now, off the track, thoroughbreds are not quite as common in Europe as they are here. It was actually an ex chaser. Anyway, we got it home, and it was sweet and lovely. It just didn't stop. So we learned to hang on pretty well and we had it for a few years and then a a lovely farmer gave us a couple of ponies that were unbroken and said here you go so you know as a 14 year old you think you know it all so i started breaking them in and i probably made every mistake under the sun in those days but eventually got a couple of lovely ponies out of that and then uh, eventually got on to my horse that i ended up taking back to college with me which was that's a story in itself that one
0: that's okay, we want to hear these stories, so it was a hackney. Tell me about the breeding.
1: Yeah, the father of that horse was a purebred English hackney. So, you know, they're really the ones under the carriage with their knees and their hocks right up in the air, quite a fine sort of horse, and they were crossed in that time with old-fashioned Dutch warmbloods in Holland to create the ultimate carriage horse. And um, that was quite, because so that, that book has had three directions, like your riding horse, your all-purpose horse, and your carriage horse. And this one was purpose-bred to be a carriage horse. It just never ended up being a carriage horse. It became a riding horse, but not without a few trials and tribulations.
0: (laughs) Now, what did people say when you've turned up with an unbroken or, or, you know, they've heard about you having an unbroken carriage horse, purpose-bred carriage horse, that you were going to turn into a riding horse? What did they say? A lot of people laughed.
1: (laughs) It was a horse that we ended up having in our stable at the age of two and a half. Very much unhandled. Even just leading it wasn't really an option if it was fresh. So there was a lot of work to be done. And, of course, it had plenty of knee and hock action. And, yeah, it was a big horse on little short legs. And people just thought it was absolutely hilarious that I was going to make a riding horse out of that. But in those days, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, I was riding a stallion for another farmer that I was in love with. But that was four times the price of this one. Mm-hmm. So I came home one day and my parents said we bought pubs, which was her name. And <laughs> yeah, so I was like, yay.
0: <laughs> wow, wow. And
1: um, I had to make do, really.
0: Okay. Now, how far did the horse actually get as far as um, a riding yeah, horse? Trained, did, competed? Yeah,
1: no, she, she competed up to advanced, competed mm-hmm. at advanced level and, okay. and was sort of training a little higher than that. And that was a lot of hard work, but she had the most amazing temperament and that made up for so much.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. All right, well, it just goes to show that a horse doesn't have to be a perfect horse. You can just get as much as you can out of the horse that you've got. You always complain that we haven't got the right horse, we haven't got the right situations and everything else, but, you know, it's like, yeah, if you're in the wrong situation, we'll change it. So it goes back to your favourite quote, really, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now he certainly was, was a very good mode, like a very good... Example for a lot of young kids to say, Oh, but you know, we haven't got the expensive dressage horse. And, mm. and I say often to them, You know, if you have a horse that is sound and has a good temperament with correct training, mm. there's really no limits. You can get a long way. Yes, yes.
0: And there's a lot of horses around that could go a long way, but just don't get the correct training in the beginning. And it's a shame to see those horses that could have gone a long way. Mm. All right. Now, you did go to college at Derna. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. You took your carriage horse, you took your purpose-bred carriage horse to Derna, <laughs> did you?
1: I did, <laughs> I did. I had some eyebrows raised on that as well in the early days, I'm mm. sure. Mm. Yeah, now Derna was a, um, in those days, it was a private equestrian college that you would go to at the age of 16, 17. In those days, it was quite a, a bit of an elite sort of school I suppose you had to get selected into it like 400 people in a year would apply and about 120 got selected into it and then along the next four years out of those 120 probably half of that would graduate so it was very much military type education it was you know for you 10 others and you know white gloves came out to check the, the walls and the, the horse and you know make sure everything was clean and yeah it was quite strict But it was also a really good experience because in those days we were sent out to writing schools, studs, competition, stables. And we used to have to work there for six to nine months, Mm -hmm. unpaid generally. (laughs) (laughs) And then we came back to the school for another three months of intense schooling with exams at the end of that. And then you would move up to the next class level sort of thing. It was a very tough school in those days, but it was also very character-building, I suppose. And um, if you wanted to learn anything about horses, they would teach you anything about horses.
0: It sounds like the ideal situation, really, for someone who's just starting off in their career to get a really good sound basis. Now, for four years... Was that a funded course? Was that a paid-for course? How did that work out? Because no, it's, it's absolutely ideal. No, my parents ideal. had
1: to pay for that.
0: Okay. My parents
1: okay. paid for that in those days, and yep. I'm still very grateful that they did. It was probably not super cheap, but they knew this was what I absolutely wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, from, as much, from as early as I knew of it, that was what I was going to do. And there was a lot of drive on my side of doing that. And yeah, they've supported me all the way, you know, which is wonderful.
0: Good, good. And then, because you'd already decided that you were going to have a career with horses. Now, was that just always from the six-year-old person that started at the local riding school? Or was there something else that brought on that change that you said, right, I'm
1: going to have a career with horses? No, I think subconsciously that was always what I was trying to do, I think. If, if I hadn't been horses, it would have been something else with animals, like a vet or something, but it was really always the horses in those days.
0: Okay. And what do you think, what core skills do you think that you had? Because a lot of people, you know, even at Derna, start off in the college and then drop out. People start off in a horse career and then drop out. You know, I've seen people go to uni, do a horse course and then never do anything professionally with horses, go on and do another career. What's the key, the keys that, you know, what do you have? There's just the core skills to start that career and stay in the career.
1: I think you have to have that love, you know, for the work, I think. The people are doing it. The reason why so many dropped out, because it was a hard school. Like we would work 60, 80, 100 hours a week easily. There was no such thing as take it easy because you're a girl it was just you know you just have to unload two truckloads of hay you know two girls and it was just shut up and put up mm. so at the end of four years if you still were there you really wanted it yep. it sort of turned out very broad based horse people because the school would cover you know, we had to learn how to drive horses. We, we would obviously learn to talk riding better, jumping. We even did sulky riding with the, you know, with the trotters. Um, we got theory and everything, show care, feeding, name it. If it had to do with horses, we got it taught. So it did turn out a very broad spectrum, not so much specialists at that time, but much more broad skilled people. Mm-hmm. And I think most people that did that school are still in the industry because it was very much a, you know, if you if you could hang in there for those four years, yeah, you must have wanted it. Yep. Yeah. And,
0: and I think... Uh, I was going to say, what was their business model? Were they just a college or did they do other work as well and the college supported that work? You know, was it also a riding school? Did they also no, break and train? No, did they also... No, so no. It was just a college?
1: It was just a college, although they did at one stage incorporate... Um, there was another farm in Holland that would test young horses, Mm-hmm. And they would bring them in as foals and then test them up for the next two to three years. And at three years old, they would bring them to Derna and we would be taught how to break in young horses. Okay. So that was sort of a bit of a, a combination at the time. But for the rest, it was pretty well mainly focused on the students and their education.
0: Okay. Do you still stay in touch with any of the people that you graduated with? I'm just interested to see what what sort of occupations they have. You know, you're, you're here working in Australia on the other side of the world as a coach, you know, and you're also doing breeding. You're also doing a lot of other things, but competitor coach, coach educator, breaker trainer and breeder, what are they doing?
1: Um, Most of them are still coaches. I mean, that sort of ended up the backbone for most of them, mainly just because that's the way to earn a living. You know, in the early days, I was probably a bit idealistic and thought I was going to be a rider for the rest of my life. But there's not a lot of money to be made as a rider whereas as a coach you know you can support yourself a little easier sure. and that's where most of them are at mm-hmm. and I think probably 90% of the people that I'm in touch with are still in the industry as coaches and trainers I think only one that I know it's sort of moved away still in the horses but not as a career anymore mm-hmm. but everybody else is either running studs or being at their own training stable and stuff.
0: Okay what about Those who've gone on, you know, because you're in touch with a lot of elite level competitors, really high level that are the best in the world. What do you think that they've got that makes them keep going to be the best in the world?
1: Uh, Drive and support, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, you do need support. You you need money behind you, really, to an extent for that sort of level. And it's also a little bit the character of some of the people. You know, if you want to be at the top, I think it takes a lot of sacrifice to be there and to stay there. And that's not always easy on them and and their family. Mm -hmm. So the support that they get from their family and the people around them is an absolute must, I think. But, yeah, it's different for everybody, I guess, to some extent. Sure.
0: Okay, now what about people who've influenced you? Who do you think you could talk about there?
1: Oh, I suppose growing up with sort of the likes of John Whitaker and Frank Slotak, Enke from Grinsford, you know, they were all top riders in those days and mm-hmm. so every teenager could imagine themselves being like that one day. Yeah, I think Frank Slodak as a rider I always really admired because he just used to sit there like he was going for a trail ride and he used to jump around these enormous competition courses and yeah, like it was nothing and it was just <laughs> amazing always. I've been lucky that with the school we got some really good coaches and I've got one coach at the school I still have a little bit of contact with. He was a very passionate man and he's always in the back of my head at times, you know, with different things that I'm writing. I can sort of hear that little voice in the back of my head going, ah, okay, so now I don't want to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what was his name? What's his name?
1: Lufan. Yeah, you've probably he, he's one of the instructors at the school and he's yep. very involved with the breeding and the stud book. Good. But yeah, incredibly passionate person and learned a lot from him. <laughs>
0: All right. Now we're gonna take you from going from your, you know, your horses at the riding school as a six year old to your off the track thoroughbreds to your you know, your ponies to the horse that you took to college. Tell us about a horse who's influenced you or horses. You know, if there's one that stands out or or a couple that I'd stand out. To
1: back, I would have to go back to the, the Hackney really for the most because mm-hmm. that was the horse I put everything in that I had and got out a lot. What was the name? <laughs> the stable name was Bubbs.
0: Oh, Bubbs, yes, Barbara you said that. Bubbs
1: and Bubz. Yeah, okay. <laughs> pretty, you know, not a very imaginative name, yeah. but yeah, she was, she'd probably shaped me the most as yes. in doing it right first time and just pour yourself into a horse mm-hmm. and only then will you get out. You know, what she gave me. I had a couple of other lovely, lovely horses after and still have, Mm -hmm. but I've never had the time to pour myself into a horse like I did to her, and therefore I never quite got the same out. Mm -hmm. I think that's something for a lot of young people to realise as well, that what you put in is what you get out.
0: Liz, what's your proudest moment?
1: I suppose, well, partly graduating from the school, yeah, a proud moment. Another one was probably getting invited and finishing the international level three exam at the BHS in England. That was a bit of an up-the-cuff, sudden decision to go there and that worked out really well and was really enjoyable. And then I guess just, you know, goals achieved, competitions achieved over the years, exposed. suppose. So not anything particular that stands out, but yeah, I suppose those things.
0: Okay. Oh, Hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory with practical components that can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Thanks. Liz, what's a tip on thinking for the listeners, something that you see often when you're coaching
1: and also how to fix it? What's a common problem that you see? I would say the forwardness is often an issue, yep. and the control over tempo and rhythm is usually an issue. And I think it's important that people, when they hop on a horse, they straight away make sure the horse is listening to forward. Um, a lot of people just sit there and you know just use five minutes to get ready, and then all of a sudden the horse has got to be there. Mm-hmm. It makes much more sense to the horse from the moment you're on that he's listening. He's got to be forward when you tell him, and you know make sure that that you correct him correctly to do that. So he would ask gently, and if he doesn't listen, you come in with a, another aid and then correct him immediately if he doesn't listen to that, and so on. Another one that I see a lot is tempo and rhythm issues. Okay. The horse rushing, and especially in the trot, and I find that if the trot tempo is under control, everything else just becomes a problem. The horses won't well listen, won't well focus, the canter is often out of control. So I think it's very important that especially the younger riders with the less experienced combinations, really spend time on making sure the horse is traveling at the tempo that they want the horse to be at. Mm -hmm. Of course, forward again, but don't mistake forward with speed either. And I I, I can't stress enough, have somebody on the ground that knows what they're doing. You know, lessons are so vital for anybody trying to learn. Even the top of the top, have eyes on the ground. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just a Mm -hmm. hard sport to do by yourself.
0: Yep. Yep, and, and so I like the way when you said about the speed, you know, you said you want the forward, but you don't want speed, so it's really about controlling that yes. energy, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, the forwardness you got to sort of look at as controlled energy, It's mm-hmm. energy that you create, yet control, yep. and the horse is unconditionally going, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Sadly, a lot of people think that as long as the horse is going fast, the horse is forward. Mm, Yet, mm. that doesn't necessarily have to be the truth because sometimes it ain't instigated by you and also it ain't controlled by you. Yep. So, these can be certainly confused with, with fullness and, and it's, again, that's where it's important to have somebody on the ground that can help writers to understand the difference. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. All right. Now, Liz, a little while ago you wrote a book. Can you tell me a bit about the book, how it came into being, and we'll talk about where to buy it as well.
1: Years ago, when I was still at school, we got given writing and theory lessons, and I remember thinking, oh, this is crazy, but actually found it incredibly helpful to be able to sit down in class and actually talk about the, the theory behind the writing, why the horse was responding that way, why we were doing certain things, you know, what were the correct age and what was happening is, you know, you didn't get the correct age or what would happen if the horse did something different and how would you correct that? And it was incredibly valuable. And it always ended up being my hobby horse. So when EI hit in, I think, 2007, Mm -hmm. I thought, well, this is a good time and ended up writing it all down in a book. And the book's really sort of aimed for people starting out in dressage or even just competing at the lower levels of dressage. And it just gives them a clean understanding about what we're trying to do, what is a logical progression, what are the age for things? What is important? What sort of problems could you expect, and how do you fix them? And it's all sort of set out in a why, what, how scenario. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not in rocket science. It's just simple, simple language that you know everybody can understand, even if you're not a dressage writer per se.
0: Okay, great, great. And just to buy the book, how can people go ahead and buy that?
1: It'll go back up on a new website. I recently shut the old one down, but yep. they can get it via me, obviously, either to ring or to email me. Yes. And also there's some saddleries around the coast that sell them. I'm pretty sure around um, the Sunshine Coast Saddlery in Paroy sells them. Yep. And Fendale. So obviously you can get it through them as
0: well. Yeah, we can put a link on our site with your notes, which is horsechats.com slash Liz Nyehouse. So we can do that and make sure people can get it through our link as well. That'd be great. Yep. Okay. What are you looking forward to now? What are you thinking of in the future?
1: I've got a few things going on. I'd like to get my old horse back up and go well, old, my, my middle-aged horse up and going, <laughs> and um and like to get her up to the FBI levels next year. Yep. That would be really lovely. And then her daughter, I've also got, her back up in work, and she'll be hopefully getting into the elementary medium next year. Mm-hmm. Still doing lots of coaching, um, training. I thoroughly enjoy training young horses and bringing them on, or correcting horses, or retraining horses. So there's a fair bit of that. Yep. And uh, yeah, so okay. you know, that's well, just basically what I'm doing already. I guess
0: <laughs> more of the same, but it sounds like you've got it all more planned of out. The same. Which is, so the planning's important, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, now if you can sum up your philosophy into a lesson today for our listeners so they've got something to take away with them, that'd be great.
1: Okay. I think be fair with your horse. Don't overface them. Ask what you can honestly expect from them. Try to be logical with your training. And your corrections when you give them and your rewards need to be as fast as possible, preferably instantaneous. They Mm -hmm. don't make sense to a horse five minutes later or even five seconds later. So it's important that if you give a correction or a reward, do it immediately. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where the eyes on the ground are so important. When you're not always sure, somebody else will say, hey, that wasn't right or hey, that was right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think last but not least, be open. Be open to listen to your horse, learn from your horse, learn from other people. It's always something to learn, always. And and sometimes even from people you least expect it from.
0: Okay. Good. Good. All right. Now how can people contact you Liz?
1: Mobile uh, mobile's probably the simplest. Mobile uh-huh. and email. Um, yep. or Facebook. Yes. Yep. I'll sort and of back into the 21st century with
0: it. <laughs> so your Facebook's just under Liz Nyehouse or is it under something different?
1: No, it's under Liz Nyehouse.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right, and also to those contact details we'll have on horsechats.com slash Liz Nyehouse, and Nyehouse is N-I-J-H-U-I-S. Is that correct? That's correct. Wonderful. All right, thanks very much for your time today, Liz, and we'll talk to you again sometime.
1: Thank
0: you, Gwyneth. Goodbye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe.